Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Christians are supposed to be an example to the world. As such, we are viewed through a much more microscopic lens. The Bible makes it clear that the world will hate Christians, and Jesus said to take heart as the world first hated him. But I mean, come on, guys. Do we need to just lob the ball in there to give the world something to knock out of the park? Yes, the answer is apparently yes, we do. To that end, today we'll talk about how nobody expects the Huntington Inquisition. I'm sorry about that. Then we'll ask the age-old question, is it baptized or baptweezed? And finally, we'll talk about those haughty good looks that God is sporting. And I'm not kidding. So, blow the dust off your most favorite Bible, pour a glass of your preferred non-alcoholic beverage, and get the shower running as you're going to need one after that last story. And probably against my better judgment, (laughs) here we go. I hate that I have to give this disclaimer, but if you're squeamish... If you have a fragile constitution, if you're easily enraged, you may want to proceed with great caution. Likewise, parents, you'll, you'll definitely want to preview this before exposing your delicate angel to this kind of, I mean, there's no other words for it, brutal torture. I'll give you the headline. That's fairly safe, and, and then you can decide from there how or, or if you want to proceed or, or if you'd rather just skip to the next subject. So here we go. Headline from WCHSTV.com. Classrooms made to attend religious revival during homeroom at Huntington High School. (laughs) There it is. There it is. All right. I'll give you a moment. Decide what's best for you and your children. Okay. Let's tone down the sarcasm a few hundred notches. I want to start here. Do we not proofread anymore? Do we not have editors that are looking for issues? The article starts simply enough with the location of the story. Now, this takes place in Huntington, West Virginia, but they start with Huntington, West Virginia. I mean, you're missing the G, and it it is just glaringly obvious. <sighs> okay, anyway, moving on. All right. Here are the basics. In Huntington High School a few weeks ago, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes invited Nick Walker Ministries to hold a revival in the school. It was supposed to be a voluntary event for students and teachers to attend. It was set during non-instructional time, and it was a student-led event, so it aligned with all of the rules. Two teachers, however, made it mandatory for their students to go because they wanted to attend. I believe that this was done during a homeroom period, so as to not leave the students alone in the classroom, these two teachers made their students go. And this is the heart of the controversy. Like I said, this is almost domestic terrorist levels. So I don't know anything of this ministry. From his statement about what he does, brings the hope of Jesus Christ to students that are living in very difficult times, very hopeless times, I would tentatively say that he's at least on the right track. 
Now, I'd have to do a lot more research on this guy before giving a full-throated endorsement, so don't take this as my agreeing with his theology or anything like that. But of course, because of the heinousness, is that a word, of this kind of religious, should we just call it modern-day crusade, we have a total of one, one student that was apparently very offended, and a couple parents that wanted their names in the news article also. Maybe there were more, probably were more, but these few individuals were apparently the most vocal, most offended, most desirous of getting their five minutes of fame. I don't know. Let's start with the senior student. And the article names him, so we will too. Scattered throughout the article are some of Max Nybert's quotes. Let's take a look, shall we? He says, my mind was blown. He says, I couldn't believe it. Uh, he says, I was told we would be going later in the week, and then I asked about it later in the week, and it was canceled. I started getting texts, photos, and videos from friends of mine that were in classes where their homeroom teachers made them attend, and they did not feel comfortable being there. And he also says, the thing that is beautiful about the world is that we're all so different. When you try to indoctrinate young people like that, especially just totally disregarding the separation of church and state in this country, it's mind-boggling and it's disappointing. Now, poor Max. His mind was blown and boggled all at the same time. He couldn't believe this was happening to him. I, well, it doesn't, doesn't sound like it actually happened to him. It sounds like he got a few texts from a few friends that were made to go. Poor, poor Max. We should give him money or, or something. We should make this right. And his uncomfortable friends, I mean, we can't have high school-aged children hear hopeful things that they don't want to hear and, and feel uncomfortable. And of course, old Max is, a, is all about the beauty of the differences of people, as long as you keep your differences away from him. Well, not from him, I mean, away from his friends. It wasn't really near Max. Remember, if you hear anything you don't want to hear, it's definitely indoctrination. Well, and then he brings out the big gun. Hard to argue with this. Separation of church and state. Yeah, I'll come back to this. Don't worry. And then we have a couple parents. We have Bethany Fellenton, uh, who was raised in a Baptist church, but her son is Jewish, and he was made to go. He even asked to leave, he told mom, and he wasn't allowed to leave, he told mom. So this was against the rights of her child. Now, the communications director for the county reported the findings of the investigation that this was all set up in the correct way. It all followed the rules. There were just two teachers who made an error in making their students go because they wanted to go. But Ms. Fellenton thinks that's a load of holy water. She says, quote, I think it's awful that they're putting the blame on just two teachers. I think it's a little bigger than that, end quote. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't appear to be bigger than that, but, but okay. Now, another parent, Jana oh, Tihalar, I'm hoping, who is literally named as, quote, another parent, not a parent of a student that was forced to go. I'm assuming she's at least a parent of a kid in the high school, but I don't even know that. Well, she said that even having the event was in violation of students' rights. She further said, quote, even if it was volunteer only, this kind of religious event should not have happened, 
in a public school setting during the school day at all. <sighs> okay, so as Christians, as logical Christians, what do we do with this? Well, let's start by addressing the statements made by people with obvious ignorance. Let's just be honest here. We'll start with Max. Now, I won't link it, but you can look him up. And this has apparently become his life's mission now, getting justice for this atrocity. But let me say this, Max is young and dumb. I can say that because we've all been there, I've been there. He's pretty sure he's got it figured out, but those of us that have grown up and grown wiser know that he's virtually clueless at this point in his young life. Unfortunately, it appears that he has adults that should be wise guides in his life, spurring him on to be vindicated for his, well, not his, but his friend's discomfort. As for his statements, was this indoctrination? Well, he even recognizes that the world is beautiful in its differences, but he doesn't seem to understand that hearing things, whether you want to or not, is not necessarily indoctrination. Additionally, I saw no quotes from these two teachers that said their students must listen, must participate, must accept Jesus as their personal savior. The one teacher said she wanted to go. So the class she was in charge of had to go as well. I guarantee that if she had left the students alone for the, what, 15, 20 minutes, old Max wouldn't have cared, but the same parents probably would have been up in arms at the recklessness of the teacher. Now, Max also doesn't seem to understand that by keeping Christianity out of schools, that is, in fact, indoctrination. He doesn't see that, and he doesn't care about that because he agrees with it. But he's been indoctrinated for 13 or more school years now. See, there are two religions, Christianity and not Christianity. And if you are keeping Christianity out of then you are indoctrinating for the other view. It's not that hard to figure out. Now, additionally, he says that this violates the separation of church and state, uh, to which I'd ask Max, what does that actually mean? To which he'd give me a stupid answer showing he has no idea, because if he did have an idea, he wouldn't have used this. In brief, and you can look this up, a pastor of a Baptist church wrote Thomas Jefferson and asked him if the state was going to impose their desires on churches or if the churches were going to be left alone. Jefferson wrote back assuring the pastor that there would be a separation of church and state. What this meant was that the state would stay out of the church. It never once ever meant that the church had to stay out of the state. Never. Furthermore, there is no codified law of separation of church and state. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It's not in the Constitution, even though most people seem to think it is. The only real backing that separation of church and state has is really case law, which is not law. And to be honest, if we ever had a Supreme Court full of justices that truly followed the Constitution, a very simple lawsuit could be brought and that concept would disappear. Poof. But I shouldn't be too hard on Max. He's, he's dealing with boggled blown mind syndrome, BBMS. As for the parents, you can also look them up if you'd like. And I don't think you'd be too surprised. I'll just say that. One says that this is bigger than the two teachers, implying that the problem is with the fact a religious event was held at all in a school. 
and the other parent said that it's a violation of students' rights and that it shouldn't have been held at all in the school. So let's just clear this up. To not allow student-led organizations to organize religious events at the school is literally a violation of their rights, not the other way around. It's not a violation of anything to hold this in the school. And the problem was literally that the two teachers made their students go. That's it. From a root cause standpoint, knowing that the event was set up and done correctly and legally, the actual root cause was that the teachers, for whatever their reasons were, made the kids go. Now, that should be handled individually based on the reasoning the individual teachers had. In general, as nobody was actually harmed, regardless of the dramatics by a few and the faux outrage of a few others, the teachers should be reprimanded and educated on what is and what is not allowed. So as a logical Christian, what are my thoughts on this? Well, the teachers were in the wrong, plain and simple. Regardless of the message being delivered, and regardless of if I agree with what was being presented, you know, true hope, true love, true forgiveness, true salvation, this is assuming that Nick Walker preaches the gospel correctly, Regardless of all this, the teachers should not have made the students go. If it was a Mormon or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Satanist presenting something, I wouldn't want my child to go. But I also know that if she did go, that she's been given the base of beliefs of what I believe, and she knows what's true. Now, she could always reject this. I can't control that. But I've given her the base of truth. I'm not afraid of other worldviews being presented to her. <laughs> In fact, I taught her and the elementary age Sunday school class for a year on major religions in the world. How can they believe what they believe if they don't know why they believe it? And what other worldviews say? Maybe I'll pick a day that we can start posting those lessons on this podcast. I'll have to think about that. So was anyone harmed? Was anyone forced to convert? Which if you're forced to convert, it's not a conversion. Is there a student that was forced to go that is now sitting at home right now in the dark room, in the corner, rocking and crying, I didn't want to believe in Jesus, but I do now and I hate it. No, there was nobody injured. Max, he wasn't even there. He's got some sort of secondhand PTSD from this. I don't know. As for the parents, this is a great opportunity to talk with their children, explaining that there are different worldviews and and although they don't believe this way, it doesn't hurt to be exposed to it, to hear what others think. This is an opportunity to build character in their child, to build resilience, to build tolerance, to build acceptance. But that's not what these parents decided to do. They decided instead to cultivate fragility, to breed intolerance, ultimately to breed hate. So the FCA and Nick Walker did nothing wrong. The school did nothing wrong. The two teachers made a mistake, and, and they shouldn't have made the students attend. The children weren't harmed. Max wasn't even there, so he needs to calm down. I mean, life gets harder, my dude. You're not going to do well in the real world if this has triggered you so badly. The parents absolutely failed. You know, and as parents, we all fail. Problem is, I'm not seeing any indication that these couple parents feel that they failed. But they did, badly. So, as a Christian, 
here's my prayer for all of this. One, that the teachers are minimally, if at all, disciplined for this. And that they make better choices in the future. This didn't and doesn't help build the kingdom. This potentially does more harm than it could do good. My second prayer would be that at least one student that was made to go actually heard the message and did or will in the future find his or her hope in Jesus. At least one. And then thirdly, that Max and these parents would get so ingrained in their cause that they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Wouldn't that be nice? So what I do know is that God is sovereign. And even this, those teachers made those students go because that's what God ordained to happen. And I know that all things happen for God's glory. In that knowledge, I have my hope and my peace. And if you're saved, you can too. Unless you've been hiding under a rock, and in which case, can I join you? Uh, you've heard of the thousands of Catholics that have had their very salvation compromised by a priest that maliciously, well, mistakenly, administered the sacrament of baptism. Look, I'm usually somewhat snarky in my commentary. Yeah, I know you don't believe it. But let's be honest, for not only the thousands that are still alive, but how many family members of those that have died the very salvation from hell to heaven by Jesus is up in the air right now. For thousands, this is a very serious situation. I shall endeavor to keep the snark at a minuscule level. Let's start with the story, just in case you're not familiar. Utilizing the ABC News headline, Baptism by Arizona Priest Presumed Invalid Due to Error. Now, the gist of the story is this. For 16 years, Father Andres Arengo, working at three parishes in the Phoenix, Arizona area, administered baptism by stating, we baptize you rather than I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I guess now Mr. Arengo has resigned as a priest in good standing, so he's still a Father Arengo. And that happened February 1st because of this kerfuffle. But since then, he's done some rebaptisms of those that he baptized erroneously, and he's trying to make amends and, and correct the error the best he can. He was apparently a very kind, loving, and well-loved priest, and the few that were quoted in the article didn't seem to hold any animosity toward him. They're, they're more confused and maybe anxious than they are angry. One mother was quoted speaking of her daughter as saying, Quote, as a mother, I feel bad because all of these years I allowed her to receive communion. Yes, baptism is required to be performed prior to the receiving of Holy Communion. In fact, there are those that are even contemplating getting remarried because of this error. There's a reason for this. We'll get to that. The Diocese of Phoenix is trying to identify all of those that have been baptized incorrectly so they can remedy the error. They've set up a FAQ section on their website as well as a form to fill out to get back in line to get rebaptized. Now, this isn't the first time, and Father Arango isn't the first priest to make this error. And because of this, because it's happened in the past, the Vatican in June of 2020 issued guidance stating that we was invalid, and if you were baptized with we, you must be rebaptized using I. 
Now, ABC goes on to relate one of the biggest known issues caused by this erroneous phrasing, not by Father Orengo, that of Reverend Matthew Hood. He was baptized as a boy using the incorrect wording, so when he was ordained in 2017, it wasn't valid, as he never had a valid baptism. This meant for at least a few years, every marriage he performed, and I'd assume that every sacrament he administered, was technically invalid. So at a minimum, those couples he married were contacted as they must be remarried. As for Father Hood, he was rebaptized and reordained. And although it's the exception, not the norm, Father Hood isn't the only one, and his parishioners aren't the only ones scrambling to get their ceremonies redone and their salvation back in order. Father Arango was very apologetic. There's no question from me or his parishioners, it appears, that he truly loved them and is brokenhearted about this error. Now, regardless of my religious view on the issue, I legitimately feel bad for this man. But because of my religious view, I believe that he and so many are stressed over absolutely nothing and have been working in a system that is not biblical. I'll get back to this in just a minute. The topic of baptism is a large one, and I am far, far from an expert, but I'm going to try to do a 10,000-foot flyover view and give you some things to think about, probably leave out more than I cover, but let's give this a try. The ordinance, or rite, or sacrament, or ritual of baptism varies as to if you are Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant. The views range from baptism just being a spiritual thing with no physical action, to sprinkling, to full immersion. It ranges in significance from basically nothing, to being a profession of your salvation, to being necessary and key in salvation. As a Protestant of the lifelong Baptist persuasion, I've always been taught and I've always believed and I believe the Bible backs up the view that baptism is not required for salvation. It doesn't save you or do anything for your sins. It must be done after conversion, after your repentance and belief and thus salvation and is done as a public profession of your salvation only. I believe that it should be done as a total immersion, but personally, I believe exceptions can be made without an issue. Now, I'm definitely not going to go through the various religions, but we want to take a look at what the Catholic religion believes, based mostly from the FAQ page for the Diocese of Phoenix, as this really answers the key questions that we may have about this. The first question we'll look at is, why is baptism important? Now, they stated that after Jesus initiated baptism, he stated, quote, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. That's John 3, 5. They further go on to quote Jesus, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's Mark 16, 16. And then when he commissions the apostles, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew 28, 19. Now, here's the problem. None of these passages say that you must be baptized in order to be saved. The water mentioned in John 3, 5 is not literal water. It is the figurative washing of your sinful nature. So John 3, 5 means that you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're cleansed from your sins through repentance and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, 16 shows baptism as a symbol, possibly a command, but to be done after salvation. It says that if you believe and then are baptized, you'll be saved. But it then says if you don't believe, you will be condemned. Well, how come it doesn't say if you don't believe or if you're not baptized? It seems like this would be crucial information, but apparently the key to salvation is belief 
not the baptism. Likewise, the Great Commission is speaking of baptism as a profession of faith, a commissioning of the disciples they're making. This doesn't say anything about baptism being necessary for salvation. But then the FAQ answer goes on to quote portions of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, saying that, quote, the Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. It then states, quote, baptism is necessary for salvation to those whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for the sacrament. Note, this is how they get around the thief on the cross question, who was obviously saved by his belief, per what Jesus said, but was definitely not baptized, which kind of puts a spanner in the works to a number of religions and their beliefs about salvation. So they already have some caveats in here as to the necessity of baptism, you know, to be invoked if the need arises. Now, it further goes on to say that, quote, the church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude, and, quote, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, to which I'd have to say that it's pretty cruel of Jesus and the apostles to not mention this baptism thing most of the time that they talk about salvation. I mean, if this is the literal key to salvation, why isn't baptism mentioned every single time salvation is discussed? The next question we'll look at is, do I need to go to confession? Well, the Bible is very clear that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. When Christ died, the temple veil tore in two from top to bottom. The veil wasn't like a curtain you have at the house. This was a very tall, very thick, possibly up to three feet thick, woven, massive wall of fabric. The symbolism is very clear. The sacrifice of Jesus opened the communication for anyone to come directly to God. A mediator is no longer necessary. So the entire process of confession is nothing more than a controlling aspect of the Catholic faith. Now, the answer that they give is that you don't have to go to confession, but you do have to get your other sacraments resolved. They then say that when you're baptized, your sins are forgiven and your soul is wiped clean! Exclamation point. Well, that's not even close to biblical. Nowhere in the Bible does it elevate baptism to the level of wiping your soul clean. This is simply just not true. But what about these other sacraments they mention? Well, that's another question on the site to which they state that baptism is the basis of the entire Christian life. It opens the door to that life. After baptism comes confirmation and then Eucharist or communion. So if your baptism is invalid then the subsequent sacraments are also invalid. This means that you will need to repeat things like confirmation, maybe redo your marriage, or be reordained to the priesthood. Now, I mean, look, I'm not going to argue with what they say you might have to redo. This is the system they've set up. They have the right to dictate the terms of their system. I would just say that their entire system isn't found or supported anywhere in the Bible. And the last question I want to look at is, isn't it legalistic to say a sacrament is invalid over a single word? <sighs> now there's the question of the day. I'll give you three guesses as to if it's legalistic or not, and your first two guesses don't count. The answer they give starts with, quote, it may seem legalistic, but... And then it states that the words, the actions, and the materials used in every sacrament are vitally important. If you change anything in any of them, that sacrament is no longer valid. So the answer, regardless of how they try to spin it, is that, yes, it is legalistic. 
Now, they'll blame it on God, but God didn't set up the Catholic sacramental system. They did. So it's absolutely legalistic. Now, I looked through the questions to see if any of them addressed what happened to someone that was invalidly baptized but now has died since it's tied directly to salvation. I couldn't find anything specific. You would think there'd be a specific question on that. But the second half of the legalistic question gives, I think, their way out of that one. They state, quote, It is important to note that while God instituted the sacraments for us, and and let me interject, no, no, he didn't, uh, they go on, he is not bound by them. Okay, so God can break his own laws. Got it. That's not the God that I know of. But let's continue. Quote, Though they are our surest access to grace, God can grant his grace in ways known only to him. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, God has bound himself to the sacraments, but he is not bound by the sacraments. They go on to say that although God will always work through properly done sacraments, he also has the right to grant grace to whomever he will and however he wants. So let me ask you this. If God is bound by the sacraments, but not to the sacraments... Who exactly is God in this scenario? This is quite literally saying that God can do whatever he wants, unless you say the magic words. Then he must do what it is you've said the magic words for. So God is God when you allow him to be. And I think that this is the crux of the problem here. The legalism. Is the rule-heavy, legalistic system the Catholic Church follows biblical? And the short answer is no, it's not. Now, many people like the systems of the Catholic Church because to them, it feels like what church should be. The system has a defined set of laws and rules. It has a systematic approach to the religion. It has people in the place of the invisible God. Think of a priest in confession or the Pope, you know, as the mouthpiece of Christ. So it feels more maybe real or tangible maybe. And it has things, or shall we say works, that you must do. Salvation, per the Catholic faith, is solely a work of God after you've done all that you can do. Now, sadly, if you ask someone of the Catholic faith if they're absolutely sure that they're saved, most will not be able to give you that assurance. They'll say they're being saved, or they're working on it, or they don't know, and it's up to God. But I've yet to hear a Catholic respond with, oh yes, I'm absolutely saved, and let me tell you why. In contrast... I can absolutely tell you that I'm saved. It's not a matter of knowing the day and the time exactly. It's not a matter of walking an aisle or repeating a prayer. It's a matter of God opening your eyes to the realization that you're a wretched, sinful mess, that you're an enemy, a hater of God, and to realize that God is your creator, that Jesus is your savior, and that you need salvation. You need to be washed clean, that you are literally and eternally hopeless without Christ. You believe, even if you don't yet have full understanding, you believe that Jesus, who is God, came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, suffered your punishment, and was murdered on the cross for your, for my, for our sins, died, was buried in a tomb, and three days later walked out of that tomb with a resurrected, glorified body, and after walking this earth for another month and appearing to many, he ascended back to heaven to prepare a home for all of his children." And when you believe that, you end up seeing the filthiness of your sin, the futility of your desires, the punishment that you deserve, and then you desire to be a child of God because of what Jesus has done for you. So you repent, 
you admit you're a sinner, you confess your sins and commit to turning around, and although not perfectly, working to be like Christ more every day. When you repent and believe, you are saved. Baptism is then the natural next step, the command of God to profess this conversion publicly, but it doesn't save you. It does not wash you clean, and failure to do so will not keep you out of heaven. Now look, I'm not saying that nobody in the Catholic Church is legitimately biblically saved, but because of the mostly extra-biblical system they're in, I'm saying that it's probably a small amount. My hope and prayer because of this incident of invalid baptisms and the press that it's getting is that maybe many Catholics will start to question if God is so petty that he would consider your marriage invalid, that he would keep you out of heaven because a wrong word was used in a ritual that was written, ordained, and mandated by man. My prayer is that Catholics the world over would, maybe for the first time ever, open their Bibles in the same way that Martin Luther did 500 years ago and look for proof that what they're being told by the Holy Father, by the so-called Vicar of Christ, is actually in the book. My prayer is that Catholics the world over would find the Jesus of the Bible, the God of the Bible, salvation as described in the Bible rather than what's been told to them by men and will repent and believe and that they will now have the assurance and the hope that the Bible, salvation, and Christ actually offers them. Well, this is the article that just keeps on giving. As I read this, I just kept saying, oh no. Oh, no, baby. Oh, baby, no, 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 baby. It just got worse and worser and worsest. Found on the New York Post, headline, This is what Americans today think God looks like. Yeah, so it should be pretty good. You see where this is going. All right, here are a few points to keep in mind before we dig in. First, no human has ever seen God. Moses, back in the book of Exodus, asked to see God, and God told him in 3320, You cannot see my face, for mankind shall not see me and live. And then in John 1.18, we read, No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. Second point, we know that God is not a human. God is a spirit. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then lastly, we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we know that God is spirit, not a human, not a physical being. We know that nobody has ever seen God, so any concept of what God looks like is purely our imagination based on his characteristics, based on his nature, based on the perception we get when reading of him. And we know that we are created in the image of God, but this in no way limits God to the physical form he created us as. He is spirit. We have a spiritual component. He clearly has emotions. We have emotions. He's clearly creative. We are creative. He's clearly wise and and even logical, and so are we, and, and we could go on and on with this. 
the physical form is literally the least important part of the image of. So with that, let's dive into this article, shall we? Now you may want to wrap something around your head to hold your chin, you know, a la Jacob Marley's ghost in A Christmas Carol, so that when I go deeper and deeper into this relatively brief article, you don't hyperextend those jaw muscles as your mouth drops agape. Okay, so when you think of the God of the Bible, if you're like, well, okay, I thought if you're like most people, you generally have the image of a huge old man, white hair, long white beard, uh, light maybe glowing all around and maybe a crown and a flowing robe or maybe maybe partially clothed with a huge muscular frame. Generally, he'll have a very serious look on his face, maybe even an angry look. Well, as this article announces, American Christians no longer see God as someone who is angry and wrathful and judgmental and old. Rather, they now see him as a very gentle, loving, warm, smiling, somewhat fuzzy-headed, generic, 30-ish-year-old guy. Literally, this is just a guy you'd see on the street. Okay, so how did they get this? Well, a study was done where about 500 people were given images that they had to sort through. They were given two at a time, and they had to pick one that they thought most closely represented who they envisioned God to be. Now, once all of these choices, amounting to approximately 153,000, were all merged into a single image, we get this generic guy. Gone is the older, wiser, and oftentimes portrayed as angry, white-bearded, white-haired old man, and in it comes the younger guy. Now, I'll come back to this change in appearance in, in just a little bit. Now, although you or I may think that this is a little bit odd, apparently according to a new book, God and Anatomy, written by Francesca Stavrakopoulou, who is a professor of the Hebrew Bible at the University of Exeter in Great Britain, this is more in keeping with what the Bible tells us of God's appearance. To which I say, uh-oh, Ms. Stav... Uh, no, no, not doing that again. Ms. Francesca says that the Bible tells us that God is a man with a human-shaped body and a beautiful face. Now, where did she find this? Well, she states that she pulls this information, this revelation, if you will, from archaeological evidence and, quote, her own translations of ancient texts. Oh, so archaeological evidence from other people that don't know what God looks like and her own translations. Ah, good. Is your chin wrapped tightly? I mean, it gets better here. Wrap it up. So I'll give you her claims and let's discuss how this lady is maybe just a little crazy or maybe she's just confused. Maybe she just wants to sell a book. So first, she states that God is very accurately described in the book, in the Bible, the Song of Songs, or you may know it as the Song of Solomon. And this description proves that, quote, God appears as an outright haughty. Okay, I'll be honest, I feel just a touch blasphemish by even repeating that. I would easily argue that God, if we were able to look at him, would be and is the most beautiful being we could ever place our eyes upon, but I don't think the human term haughty really does God justice, and I don't think it shows him any reverence. But let's just keep going. She states that in the Song of Songs, God is described as having eyes like doves, and radiant skin, and 
cheeks like beds of spices. And I could go on where the article doesn't. How about lips like lilies, hands as gold rings set with the barrel, legs are as pillars of marble, and on it goes. This description is taken from chapter 5. It took me a few minutes to realize why she was equating this passage to a description of God, and then I remembered what I had learned prior, that not all those that use the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, agree with what the Song of Songs is actually saying. The basic premise of the book is that of a husband and wife, specifically newlyweds. Now, due to the massive difference in tone and uniqueness of this book and the obvious sexual imagery, alternative interpretations are used because if there's one thing we know absolutely for sure is that God does not condone desire and passion for your spouse and sex in the confines of marriage. So the other two most oft interpretations are... First, that of some branches of Christianity that have done a disservice to many by making them believe sex is always dirty, in which they say this is a picture of Christ as the husband and the church as the bride. And although maybe there could be some parallel imagery between human marriage and Christ and his bride, specifically as stated in this book, um, no, I mean, in my opinion, this, this is bordering on ridiculous. The other interpretation is that of Judaism, which generally believes that this is an allegory for God as the husband and Israel as the bride. This is where Ms. Francesca pulls her ideas that God is a hottie. If you were to believe that the image of the husband is literally God, and that the description of the husband is literally describing God's features, then you can get what she's saying. Only problem is that, again, no, this is not what this book is talking about. It's not God and Israel. And why do I say it's not either the alternative Christian or Judaistic view? Well, because that makes this passage obscene and gross. Again, this is my opinion. I'll admit that. But if this passage is interpreted literally as a poem or a song between a husband and wife, then this is a very intimate, very sexually charged, but very beautiful book describing the passion the two have for one another, finding beauty in every aspect of each other. But if this is an allegory for Christ and the church, or God and Israel, I'm sorry, but it just seems disgusting, obscene, and unbiblical. So, she goes on to speak of what God looked like on ancient coins and carvings, to which I say, who cares? And then she said that God even described himself as being long-nosed to Moses in the book of Exodus. Now, I think that having a long nose is only beautiful to some. It's kind of subjective. You may be saying, what verse is that? And, and I did too, so although they give no biblical references in this article, I did find it. Exodus 34, 6 states, quote, The Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, end quote. So there you have it. He has a long nose. Okay, yeah, I know, I know. Where did I get that? You know, from that verse. Well, turns out the phrase translated in English as slow to anger translates to an old Hebrew idiom of long of nose. This is not a physical description that God was giving. What an odd place and an odd physical description to pick. 
when you look at the context. First, let me take a little quick rabbit trail here. I find it amazing that as God passes by Moses, as there is nobody higher to give praise and worship to, God gives worship to himself. Think about that. As they say in the South, that'll preach. Okay, but let's look at what God said in a boiled down manner. As he's passing by Moses, he says, I'm God. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm all loving. I'm perfectly faithful. I am forgiving. I am just. And oh man, you should see my nose. It's pretty long. Does this come even remotely close to anything that makes sense? This is simply a translation into a figure of speech like kick the bucket. Long of nose means slow to anger and short of nose means quick tempered. So, you know, I'm sorry to burst her bubble, but this is just an idiom. She probably just thinks I'm a wet blanket, you know, raining on a parade like that, but I feel it's best to just put all my cards on the table. Okay, okay, yes, I'll, I'll stop. No need to fly off the handle. <laughs> okay, lastly, she says that in Psalms, God is described as a deity so alluring that adoration borders on desire. Again, there's no reference given, and this was one of the most difficult ones to find, and I'm not sure I did, but this was the best I came up with. So, looking up desire in the Blue Letter Bible online, the only verse that made even a remote bit of sense was chapter 73, verse 25, where in the Psalm of Asaph, it stated, quote, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. End quote. Now, assuming this is the verse she's talking about, as it's the only one possible that I could find, this desire isn't a lustful, physical form kind of desire. This is the desire of a man for his creator, his protector, his guide, his rock. Put simply, this is a desire to follow and know and worship his God. Swing and a miss, strike three. Based on this, I would not recommend this book, as I have a feeling this book is nothing but a sexually charged book placing us into a physical, lust-filled relationship with God. This, although you'll find some preachers, some so-called pastors, and some garbage being passed off as worship music that promote this idea, this is simply gross, not to mention irreverent and blasphemous. Now, the article wraps up with the leader of this study giving some final thoughts. He states that Despite the fact that 2,600 years of theologians in both Judaism and Christianity have taught that we take these so-called descriptions as figurative, many people today believe that if we're created in God's image, then God must look like us. So, you know, forget the 2,600 years of theologians, because today, right? And since we don't know how God looks, we might as well start with how we look. He also states that over time, the art has reflected a gradual softening of our image of God. He goes on to say that this would make sense as during periods of instability, the people generally view their God as more stern, more authoritarian. But as we move into generations of general peace and prosperity, we tend to soften our gods into more likable, happy individuals. Okay. Beyond the ridiculousness of the author of that book, beyond the obvious twisting or flat-out ignoring of the context of the Bible, beyond the lumping of Christianity into all other religions, beyond the fact that we literally have no idea what God looks like, I see a bigger problem with this softer, more gentle, younger, average Joe 
looks like he's one of us kind of image of God that the study compiled. And the problem of why that's the perception that people have of God. See, God is all things and all things perfectly. He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly knowing, perfectly powerful, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly merciful, perfectly just. He has perfect love and he has perfect anger. He has perfect grace and he has perfect wrath. If you go back to the Bible and you follow the apostles into the history books for the early disciples, through the great theologians, through to today, you'll find the preaching has moved from the entirety of the Bible, the entirety of God, the fullness of his love, and the fullness of his justice, including the reality of his wrath, to a now very limited, very calculated version of God that has all the love and mercy and has dropped the justice and wrath. Most of the big-name pastors and nearly all of the televangelists exclusively preach about a God that does not exist. This God is only loving. This God only wants you to succeed, to prosper, to be happy. This God wants you to never be ill, to never experience pain, to never have emotional hurt. This God is silly and goofy and has essentially the same sense of humor as you do. This God is very similar to the sitcom dads of the 80s and 90s. When you sin, he's waiting for you in the kitchen, arms folded, and gives you that quasi-stern look. And then he smiles and laughs and gets you ice cream. This God is preached by the likes of Stephen Furtick, T.D. Jakes, Cree Flo Dollar, Andy Stanley, Rick Warren, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Perry Noble, Todd White, John Hagee, Paula White, Greg Laurie, Mike Bickle, Real Talk Kim, Francis Chan, Beth Moore, and so many more. This God does not exist. You will not find this God in the Bible. You will only find him in the imagination of, quote, pastors that are more interested in their own bank accounts than they are in actually preaching the gospel and bringing the lost to a knowledge of salvation. You want to know why the perception of the image of God is softened and now looks more like a sub-middle-aged, all-around nice guy? Because that's what's been preached for a number of years now to unsuspecting people. The number of churches that are modeling themselves after the seeker-sensitive theory is increasing at an alarming rate. This is nothing more than a ploy to preach a soft, if ever spoken about God, in all-loving Jesus who just wants to be your buddy, a Holy Spirit who is just a genie to fulfill your every wish, and the promise of a wonderful life if you just work hard enough and have enough faith, meaning if your life doesn't go right, it's your fault for not being faithful enough. They do this by removing the concept of sin and hell, removing a God who has very specific laws and morals, unhitching the Old Testament, and substituting the sitcom dad for Jesus. They use cafes and secular music and worship that is nothing more than a rock concert, minimal scripture, a lot of personal stories and anecdotes, comedy, crazy stunts, and general idiocy, all wrapped around some sort of a motivational talking point list of three ways to do this and five points to create a better that. And then, then you should probably sow a monetary seed, you know, to demonstrate your faith. And this is being taught to your babies in the nursery, to your children, to your youth. And do I even need to mention the concerts and conferences created for the teens and young adults? These are nothing that any Christian should go to or send or allow your child to attend. 
The God of the Bible is perfect in all things. He is not just the angry, vengeful God that has been pushed onto us by those that need him to go away so they can have the sweet, only loving Jesus. Need I remind you that Jesus is God. And if you want to really blow your mind, read about Jesus in Revelation, his second coming. You may be surprised. People, get out of these churches. Delete the podcast from these wolves. Unsubscribe from their YouTube channels. Do not buy tickets to their conferences. And stop giving these charlatans money. Find real men. Yes, men, as women are not supposed to be pastors, you know, says the Bible. Find real men that teach the entirety of the Bible. The Bible as written. I have many great names. If you're interested, send me an email or write a comment. I'll give you some ideas. There are many great teachers that love God and love his word and aren't afraid to preach the entirety of the Bible. And most importantly, you get into the Bible. Open it up. Those that are in these heretical churches will not be held blameless as they had every opportunity to open their Bible and see if what they're being spoon-fed was the meat of the word or poison. Open your Bible and read. Who cares what God physically looks like? If he physically looks like anything at all. Learn who God is. Learn who you are. Learn what the gospel is, what salvation is. Make sure your name is written in the book of life. And then pay it forward. Help others that are caught in these heretical churches listening to these wolves. Help them to see the truth of the Bible. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.